Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Not to say that this is the most famous line from Walt Whitman, but I think the the passage that you see most often quoted from Whitman's poetry on social media is the passage from his poem Song of Myself, and it goes like this. Do I contradict myself? Very well then. I contradict myself. I am very large. I contain multitudes. And the passage came to mind recently because I was listening to an interview on a New York Times podcast. It's one that I strongly recommend. It's called Talk Softly. And the interviewer was speaking with one of my favorite people on earth, the New Yorker's editor-in-chief, David Remnick. Remnick spoke for a while about reporting on the war between Israel and Hamas. And he says to the interviewer, one of the most difficult things for a person to do is hold two contradictory truths in their head at the same time. And, and he's, he's invoking that sensibility, that idea, because he thinks that that is at the root of all of like the social fallout that has ensued from, the, from Israel's war in Gaza. But that phrase about holding two conflicting truths in your mind has been, has been staying in my head because of its, applica its general applicability to life. And the, way, and the way that he delivered it, like the very passive, very adult sounding confirmation that there are such things as contradictory truths, and we very often are tasked with navigating our lives in the gray area between them, trying to embody or trying to conjure the best bits of both sides. I discovered a YouTube channel this year, late in 2023, and I fell pretty deep into exploring its content, same as I did with a similar channel last year. And one of the things that I have learned, just as Whitman's character, his narrator in that poem, seems to be learning so much about himself as he is, you know, chanting this poem, it's not, it's not a savory thing. But I have found that one of the diversions I seek, one of the ways that I escape from the day's problems and put my mind someplace else, is I go on the internet, usually and this is in a state of exhaustion or exasperation or defeat. And somehow I end up watching things that are going to scare the shit out of me deeply. Things that will make me deeply, deeply upset and paranoid and afraid. Things that are going to make me want to booby trap the windows and carry a bat from room to room. The YouTube channel in question is called Pixels After Dark. It's a channel of mini documentaries, kinda. I, like, I guess you could categorize them as true crime, kinda. But rather than try to explain what the channel is about, let me just read you the title. Some of the titles. The darkest media ever created by killers. TikTokers who recorded their final moments. When cave exploring goes horribly wrong. Creepy images hidden in video games. I sit and I watch these videos occasionally. Mostly, I listen to them while I'm walking the dog or running errands. And I always think when, when I put one of these on that I'm just scratching an itch, catering to my curiosity. But invariably, like I stop walking and I take my phone out of my pocket and I lean on a wall somewhere or I sit on a bench and I end up watching the whole video. And after watching the video, I end up nervous and I'm jumpy and I'm wary of other people looking at me. And yet, despite all of those weird, uncomfortable, 
after effects of being subjected to some horrible true crime anthology, I also feel weirdly social, like I'm electrified by the horror of whatever I was just watching. And something I've noticed and something I've, I've puzzled over recently is the fact that the first thing I want to do after watching some really horrifying thing on the internet is to go and tell somebody what I've just seen. I hear a scary story and then I immediately want to share it, but I don't want to write about it. I want to sit down with someone and tell them the story. I want to see their visceral reaction and then tell them about my own visceral reaction. It's the shocking stuff that I urgently want to share. And I'm really not that social, as you can probably tell. Usually if I read or hear something, some story, and I'm compelled by it, and I want to, you know, put my own spin on it, the way I do that is podcasting, or I, I write something, or increasingly now I doodle. It's really only in recounting scary stories that I feel driven into face-to-face -face engagement with other people. I mentioned a minute ago that Pixels After Dark isn't the first channel where I slipped into a kind of day-ruining, paranoia-inducing rabbit hole. The same thing happened last year with a channel called Mr. Ballin, uh, which is also the name of the channel, the, the channel operator, the host, the storyteller, is like a mix of Polly Shore, Sean William Scott, and the Crypt Keeper. He's like a wholesome dude telling horrific stories. Shoulder-length hair, a hipster mustache, a backward baseball cap. He's always wearing jeans and flannel. Mr. Ballin tells true crime stories, and usually there is a slight visual element to these videos, but for the most part, it's just what I, what I described. It's like traditional campfire oral storytelling. We see this grown-ass man dressed like a guy DJ Tanner would bring home. He's sitting in front of a camera on a chair that has no back. Also, he's a veteran, so he's got impeccable posture when he's sitting on that box or whatever it is, and he's just staring into the lens and telling a story with his voice. And the story he tells, pretty much 9 times out of 10, is the most disturbing shit you will hear in a month. And I think it's revealing to see that even though the documentary-ish videos from that first channel, Pixels After Dark, those are like way more cinematic, way more visual, and they cover way more ground than Mr. Ballin's stories, and yet Mr. Ballin has a much larger following than Pixels After Dark, by which I mean about 40 times as many subscribers. There are 8.4 million people subscribed to Mr. Ballin's channel. And there's a few reasons to explain that. For one thing, he's been around longer, which is important, obviously. He, he's got more videos up than Pixels After Dark. Plus, because his videos aren't particularly visual, I, it lends really well to an audio experience. Given some time, given some perfection of his craft, the guy who operates Pixels After Dark might someday be as big as Mr. Ballin, because at the end of the day, if you look at the Venn diagram between their audiences, meaning people who regularly submit themselves to these fucked up horror stories about murder and kidnap and whatever, that Venn diagram is probably very close to being a perfect circle. And yet, I think Mr. Ballin's channel will always be the more popular of the two. And the reason, put simply, is the setup. That very simple setup of just a dude who looks and sounds like the living embodiment of dudeness, sitting in front of a camera, dressed consistently and comfortably and modestly, staring into a lens, telling you a story with his words. And he's got certain tics, and he uses the same words and phrases too often. Sometimes he uses them in the wrong way. But all of those things, 
all those quirks of word choice and articulation and whatever, they all lend to the same thing. To the same thing that so many of us experience with LeVar Burton in Reading Rainbow or The Crypt Keeper in Tales from the Crypt or Jonathan Frakes when he hosted that, that short-lived show, Factor Fiction. It's the spell that is cast by the amiable host. The poet Dante in The Inferno and then Purgatorio, he has his favorite, he imagines his favorite poet, Virgil, escorting him through hell and then through purgatory. Because if you're going through hell, literal hell, you would want as your guide, someone who makes you feel comfortable, someone familiar, someone you respect, someone who can tell a story. In other words, who can look through the chaos of a, of a situation and they can discern and explain to you the sequences of cause and effect. And I think there's something about the host in a story of the macabre. And we can, we can include Vincent Price in that group too, who takes a more cherished role in the audience's heart because for one thing, they become a human safety blanket. They are the safe and consistent thing in a sequence or, or maybe an anthology of unsettling stories. I mentioned in a recent episode that the only thing we seem to like more than a good story, or at least as much as a good story, is the conversation that comes with it. It's really the only surviving allure of movie theaters is this feeling of having a communal experience whenever you go to hear a story. Laughing together, gasping together. Well, Mr. Ballin, on top of being the host of these stories that he tells, the familiarity of his face which is right up in the camera gazing back at you, his sense of humor, his intonations, and his wardrobe, and the consistency and simplicity of the set, they all begin to make him feel incredibly familiar. They, they make him feel like a companion. And so maybe that's what I'm actually being drawn toward when I look at these heavy-ass videos for some sort of diversion in a scary time. It's not because I want to be freaked out that I'm watching these freaky videos, it's that I'm looking to share the company of a storyteller whose presence, I guess, I associate with shepherding me through frightening things. And it is when I'm freaked out already, or exhausted, or exasperated, or defeated from something going on in, in daily life, that I end up resorting to these stories. Stories about how other people were exhausted, and exasperated, and defeated, and it feels so fucked up to say that I enjoy those stories, or that they bring me a moment of peace, by any discernible measure, they do not. They do not bring me peace. My heart rate increases, sometimes I get nauseous, it makes me uncomfortable in my surroundings, and yet, it's in those states of natural and intense discomfort that I go and I look for a more curated, familiar discomfort. And it's weird. I realize I must be among at least eight 0.4 million people who do the same thing. And that's not really a huge consolation either. I don't feel like it's suddenly very popular or cool to start talking about these things in public, but I do feel like, you know, if that many people like it very well, I contradict myself.